Dominic. Hi Katie, I'm back from holiday. You're back from holiday and you're back from the door. What just happened? Uh, yeah, just got interrupted. A very nice man from Ukraine found my husband's wallet on the street and yeah, handed it in. Isn't that so nice? It was just, it, but it was a bit frantic because I was in the middle of just starting speaking to you. That's all right. I'm now out of breath. That's a lovely European story. And he gave me a note from Ukraine as a gift. And I was like, you don't have to give me anything. I have to give you something. What did you give him in the end? I had a bottle of wine that I gave him. That's nice. Um, Listen, we need to get on with this because um, I've got really important breakfast plans. I'm in London and get this. There's a place that bakes an entire English breakfast into a loaf of bread. That sounds disgusting. It does. It's really hot. I'm really not in the mood for it. But um, we have one of the very few reservations at this cafe that are possible. So we need to get on with talking about stuff. Uh, tell me quickly, though, what's been happening in Amsterdam this week? Uh, I got back from holiday, so I'm afraid I've got no like lapping waves in the background this week. Just those damn tormenting church bells. Yay. But I'm just about to start a Dutch course. So maybe next week's episode should be entirely in Het Nederlands. Yeah, spawnant. That's <laughs> Indeed. as far as my touch goes, apart from various animals. That's exciting, though. It sounds pretty intense. It's like quite a lot of hours every day, right? It is, and I'm a bit scared because I'm a bit stupid when it comes to languages. But as regular listeners of this podcast might realise, I'm not even very good at English. But you, you sing in other languages all the time. Well, I'm really good at pretending. I'm really good at um, making it sound like I know the language so I can... I can say really basic things, but I'm just not very good at grammar. I never got taught it in England. And I do think maybe it's changed now. But when I was growing up, they just didn't teach us grammar. No, they don't do that in England. And my French friends are always shocked when they're like, explain this grammatical rule to me. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, why would I know that? Because in France, like you get taught the grammar of the language, you know the rules. I do sometimes think there's like a correlation between our sort of like disregard for the rules of stuff and our like general situation of political collapse and decay right now. It's a theory I'd like to explore at some point. Yeah, interesting. I'm sure someone has written a book about this. Oh, if they haven't, I should get on it. But um, what's going on this week? Who are we talking to? Uh, coming up in this show, we're going to be speaking to Matteo Villa, who is a migration expert at the think tank ISPI. I actually don't know what it stands for. <laughs> Shall I practice my, my foreign language skills right now? Yeah, go on. It's the Instituto per gli Studi di Politica Internazionale. But yeah, we're talking to Matteo. Yeah, he had a series of tweets that went viral about the so-called pull factor in the Mediterranean for migrants. That is the argument where when there are rescue boats from NGOs ready to save migrants crossing the Mediterranean, it is assumed that more people are likely to make the crossing. Spoiler alert, the pull factor doesn't really seem to exist. Um, Matteo will be talking to us about this and giving us a good overview of the state of play in Italy with regards to migrant arrivals. He'll help bring us up to date and it's a good listen if you haven't been following the day-to-day news from the Mediterranean. So keep listening. He's a very engaging guy. But first... We've got a recent commemoration this week. Uh, On the 17th this week, it will be five years since the passenger flight MH17 on its way from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur got shot down by Russian orders in the eastern part of the Ukraine. All 298 people on board, about two thirds of them Dutch citizens, died. The tragedy has since been a litmus test for the relations between Russia and the EU and the wider international community. And the process of truth finding has recently been strained by 
the Malaysian Prime Minister, questioning the outcomes of the joint investigation team. It seems that Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed decided that keeping Russia as a friendly ally was more important than the truth-finding mission behind this tragedy. That said, Malaysia have been trying to set up an international tribunal through the UN, and this was vetoed by Russia. It's still very much a big issue here in the Netherlands, and is rightly still discussed widely in the Dutch media to this day. Last month, Dutch public prosecutors charged three Russians and one Ukrainian with murder for their involvement in shooting down the plane. It is, however, pretty impossible to imagine that they would ever be brought to trial. Five years have passed, but I'm sure the search for justice will continue. Sorry to start the show on a downer. That's all right. Maybe in that case, since uh, we're doing Good Week, Bad Week now, we should start on Good Week. Let's do that. Who's it been a good week for, Katie? Uh, it's been a good week for Kyriakos Mitsotakis. He is the new Greek Prime Minister. Say goodbye to Alexis Tsipras. Greece had elections Sunday before last, and Tsipras and his party, Syriza, they're the left-wing party who've been in charge since 2015. They lost by a landslide. Can you lose something by a landslide? Or do you have to win by a landslide? I think you can lose by a landslide. I'll give you that. All right. Well, anyway, Mitsotakis, who's from the centre-right, his party, New Democracy, won by a landslide. And now he has an actual majority of seats in Parliament, which feels like a rare thing anywhere these days. And it wasn't really a surprise. The election was called in the first place because Syriza, the previous party in charge, had done really shockingly badly in the European elections. So Tsipras had called elections early to try to protect this very delicate recovery that the Greek economy has been making recently by kind of minimalising the instability and uncertainty around it. So who is Mr. Goodweek, Mr. Mitsotakis? Uh, He's kind of the definition of the establishment. He comes from a political dynasty. His dad was prime minister. He went to Harvard, used to be a banker. He's right up your street, Dominic. Mm. Um, He's very pro-business. And he says that now that Greece is gradually putting the financial crisis behind it, it is time to revitalise the economy, bring in foreign investment and create reasons to stay in the country for the hundreds of thousands of young Greek people who've just been heading abroad since the financial crisis, just looking for work and looking for job opportunities. He's also promised to do something about these really horrific refugee camps on the island where something like 16,000 people have been stuck, in some case for years, uh, living in really awful conditions. So he says it's time for change. And that does seem to be the way that a lot of Greeks are feeling. One of the things that helped him win this election was appealing to middle class voters who felt that they've been asked to shoulder a really disproportionate amount. So they've been promised tax cuts. And in general, this feels kind of like a return to normal politics in Greece. Um, Mitsotakis's party is like an old school centre-right party. It is one of the traditional parties of government in Greece. And some people are billing this election as the first time a European country has experimented on populism and then turned its back on it. I mean, that's something that depends on whether you consider Tsipras and the previous government to be populist. It's true that they came to power promising to smash the system and end austerity. And ultimately, what ended up happening back in 2015 was that Tsipras capitulated to the EU and the other institutions that were lending Greece all of this money. And he did everything that they told him to. He cut public spending. He cut people's pensions. He raised people's taxes. He brought in all of these things that have made people's lives really hard. And in the end, he made policy choices that were really orthodox and in line with what the big institutions were telling him to do. Yeah. And did he have much choice? I mean, there seems to be some debate about that. Yanis Varoufakis, his ex-finance minister, says that he could have stuck to his principles more strongly, but many other observers say 
there was absolutely no choice. Yeah, it's one of those counterfactual things, right? Where we're like, we will never know what would have happened if he had stuck to his guns. I mean, probably well, a lot of people would say Greece would have had to leave the Euro. And who knows what kind of disaster that would have brought. I guess we'll never know. I don't know how history will judge him. When I was last in Greece reporting, which was a couple of elections ago, it feels like a long time ago now, things were really bad. Like cash machines were rationing cash and people were stockpiling tins. It was really crazy. And it isn't like that anymore. He has managed to steer the country back to something a bit more like normality. But to get there, he had to go against everything that he said he would do. I think he's a really interesting politician. Like he did something that was really against his own politics for what he felt was the good of the country. And it does take a kind of special kind of courage to do that, I guess. So Greece obviously still isn't in a great place and nearly one in five people is unemployed. So Mr. Mitsotakis has got his work cut out for him. It'll be interesting to see what he does next. Who has had a bad week? Uh, it's been a bad week for the European Vega rocket, which failed for the first time just a few minutes after a launch from French Guyana on Wednesday last week. The rocket was going into space for the United Arab Emirates, who had paid for this rocket to take off in order to transport an Earth-monitoring satellite called Falcon I-1, which is a rather sci-fi sounding name for a satellite, if ever I heard one. Cool. Um, so why is this a European story, even though the rocket took off from South America and was carrying a satellite from the United Arab Emirates? Well, it's because the Vega rocket has been the European rocket since 2012. It was developed by the Italian Space Agency and the European Space Agency. And according to Jonathan Amos at the BBC, it is an integral part of a rocket operation that guarantees Europe's access to space. I must admit, I know nothing about rockets, but having read a little about it for this, it would seem that the Vega is indeed vital to keeping Europe competitive in space. What exactly happened, we don't know yet, but a major anomaly occurred, resulting in the loss of the rocket at about two minutes after launch. The French-based company Ariane Space, who market the launches, were so sorry that it hadn't worked out. I actually felt quite sorry for the representative who read out the apology to her customers. She sounded devastated. Um, it's also been a bad week for their insurers, who Reuters say were a company called Munich Ray, and their package for the rocket and satellite was reported at 369 million euros. Oh no, uh, I thought you were going to say thousand. No, that would make this the biggest ever space insurance loss so yeah the vega rocket has been pretty good up until now they had 14 launches uh, that had gone by without a glitch and for the next launch that they've been planning they were hoping to launch 42 satellites in one mission and launching satellites is like one of the most important things that a rocket can do apparently these days um we'll see whether this failure puts those efforts back at all but yeah bad week Bad week. Um, I've only written one thing down in my notes, which is, is this rocket named after Lou Bega, the great European? Most people don't know that he's actually German. I didn't know that. Da, it doesn't sound like da, a German da, name. Da, the guy who did Mambo Number no. 5, actually German. Who knew? That's like the ve- the fact that the Wenger boys are actually Dutch. I mean, what's going on, guys? We need to put together a playlist of like unexpected Euro trash hits. Indeed we do. Somebody pointed out to me, Dominic, that we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about what is happening within Europe, but not so much talking about what's happening on its borders and the way that we treat people who are trying to enter it, which does seem to me a little bit hypocritical given how much attention is given to Trump and the Mexican border. Like our own behaviour here in Europe 
in my opinion, also leaves a lot to be desired just in terms of like meeting basic standards of human decency. We did talk about it last week. That's true. And that is kind of why we're coming back to it a little bit. The boats crossing the Mediterranean, they've kind of dropped out of the headlines, I guess, since the peak of people arriving back in 2015. I mean, they absolutely have. Yeah, they have. (laughs) Significantly. Significantly, because the numbers are nowhere near as high as they were back then, right? We've stopped calling it the migrant crisis. It's actually, it's funny, I was just thinking about that reporting trip I did back to Greece uh, when I was covering the election. And I also spent a lot of time on the islands talking to all the people coming in. And it was just so mad. Like at any one time, you could see several boats on the horizon making their way into this island. It was just absolutely staggering, the number of people coming in. But that isn't really happening anymore. Like the numbers are way down, which is actually something we wanted to ask our guest about. He is, uh, as Dominic said, the Italian migration analyst Matteo Villa on the line for Milan, where he works for the Italian think tank ISPI. And uh, yeah, we started by asking him, how come fewer people are coming these days? Well, there are a number of reasons, but you know, just look at the numbers. It's uh, at least for Italy, it's incredible how uh, how down it's gone. We've recorded like an eight percent drop between 2017 and 2018, and for this year, compare again to 2017, where uh, numbers were still quite high. It was 150,000, just to make uh, a comparison. We're now 95 percent lower. So. Just 3,000 people reached uh, Italy across the Mediterranean this year. I'd say that causes are multiple, but it's mainly that uh, the U.S. started to cooperate with um, other countries in order to externalize the borders, as we say, asking them to cooperate in order to uh, bring down the irregular uh, passages, crossings. And so with countries of origin, countries of transit in Africa, for instance, the transit between Niger and Libya, so those main crossings that were trying to reach uh, Italy or Malta, uh, have gone down considerably already since 2016. And as you might know, this kind of externalization has uh, continued uh, by the cooperation between the EU, Italy in particular, and the and Libya, especially the Libyan Coast Guard. And things like, so for example, people deciding not to make that journey from Niger to Libya, is that because the message is getting through back to people in sub-Saharan Africa, like, this is a terrible idea, don't do it. Yeah, I guess uh, experiences are accumulating in Libya. While in 2013, 2014, it was a fairly safe crossing, it is true that already there, there was detention in Libya. People were stuck there for maybe months at a time and tortured and uh, were facing inhuman treatments in detention centers. Uh, at least they had the prospect of getting to Europe. Nine out of ten of those that attempted crossings then in the end made it. So you had that hope there. And uh, since 2017, we are actually have uh, six out of ten attempted the crossing were caught and brought back by the Libya Coast Guard. So the same people that are torturing and and treating humanly uh, migrants, then are bringing them back. And this has made its way along the route. And so, you know, people are not uh, trying that route anymore in the same numbers. And maybe, probably, what has also happened is that Niger and Sudan have cracked down on irregular migration more than we expected at first. So where exactly are most of these migrants coming from at the moment? Actually, it's it's hard to look at the uh, nationalities to have a great picture because so few are coming. But uh, mainly the people who get to Italy, so just the 3,000 who made it across the central Mediterranean, they actually are not living from Libya. In uh, the, the most part is actually living from Tunisia, Algeria, 
and uh, you know using sometimes speedboats. So it's totally different. Uh, the crossing. It's not. Uh, I would not even compare it. If you're in Tunisia and Algeria and trying to reach Italy, you are a different migrant. Probably, mostly you are from North Africa, so you are already Tunisian or Algerian, and you get to Italy paying a bit more and much more safely. And then, yeah, we have also people coming from Greece and Turkey. The most part of the sub-Saharan Africans are now still trapped in Libya, and they are there. We, there is an estimate of almost 700,000 migrants in Libya right now, of which at least 50,000 are uh, registered with UNHCR, which is the uh, High Commissioner for Refugees. So they are in a refugee-like situation. It means that they were forced to leave the countries according to UNHCR. So in between those figures, you have um, an estimate of those who could want to escape Libya right now, but uh, are unable to do so. And, um, and one of the reasons, of course, that migration from Libya has been back in the headlines over the last couple of weeks is the case of uh, Carola Raquette, the the German captain of that rescue ship, who has been kind of locking horns with Salvini for bringing her ship in to dock in Italy without permission. Um, So Salvini and a lot of other anti-immigration politicians have complained for ages that boats like hers work as a kind of taxi service for migrants and that they're encouraging people to make the crossing purely because by being there, people think, oh, great, you know, we're going to be rescued. Um, You debunked that idea in a series of tweets. Can you talk us through like why we should dismiss this idea that the rescue boats act as a kind of pull factor that encourages people to make that journey? It's actually kind of an interesting story how the genesis of it went because I set out as a researcher, I'm an empirical researcher, so I was trying to actually estimate how much the pull factor was. So how much did the NGOs actually encourage people to to depart? I was setting out from this logic that, I mean, it's clear that uh, uh, the pull effect is there. My suspicion was it was small, but not that it was not there. Then I used data. I compiled data from monthly arrivals to Italy uh, from different sources. I put it together. And for five years, between 2014 and 2018, I found no effect, which is actually striking because it's quite logic to think, you know, NGOs, they get so close to the Libyan coast. They are so eager to rescue people. They're not like commercial boats. They're just passing by. They're there. They do this kind of, uh, we call them in Italian, ricerca pettine, which means you are like combing the the, uh, the sea. So it's normal to expect that uh, these encourages people to depart. Even NGOs themselves were thinking that uh, this would happen, but that it would not be uh, the most important thing because they said, I mean, it's ethical to to save people, right? So they were not expecting that the pull factor was not there. They were expecting that it was there. But in the end, data shows that whether NGOs are there or not, uh, that doesn't happen. So you can look at it uh, through monthly data in five years. You can look at it in with daily data, as I'm doing right now, in the past six months, which is like the perfect experiment because currently next to the coast of Libya, you either have one or two NGOs or zero, right? So you can compare the two. And so when NGOs in the past six months have been off the coast of Libya, 32 people per day were departing on average. And where there were no NGOs, 34 people per day were departing. So it's almost the same. Why is that? Um, Well, there are different theories. One is that uh, the traffickers and smugglers who organize the departures really do not care a lot about people being saved. So whether there is an NGO or not, uh, that doesn't make much of a difference. But probably the the most compelling thing is that it is true that smugglers and traffickers do react to whether an NGO is 
on is there or not, but they simply change the means through which they send a migrant. Okay, so they might put you on a very unseaworthy dinghy or put you on a, a sturdier boat, right? But the number of people that they are aiming to make depart from Libya doesn't change according to whether NGOs are there or not. Uh-huh. And this might be a stupid question, but how long is the journey by sea from Libya to the Italian coast? And just how treacherous is it? If you're alone and, I mean, you're not rescued, it might take you up to two to three days. So it is long and it's very dangerous because waves in the Mediterranean, when we look at the Mediterranean, we think it's like a closed sea. But from Libya to Italy, there are hundreds of miles and uh, waves can reach up to four meters sometimes. So it's very, very dangerous for small boats. For now, if you look at official data in terms of uh, fatalities, um, between 2014 and 2017, so when we had high arrivals in Italy, close to 2% were dying at sea. And uh, right now the the trip has become much more dangerous. We are uh, next to 9%. So almost one in 10 dies while attempting the, the, the crossing between Libya and Italy. And as I told you before, six in 10 are not die simply because they are brought back to Libya. So just three out of 10 make it to Europe safely. There was a big change when the new Italian government came in because they suddenly said, look, we've been accepting these migrant boats coming in for so long enough is enough, we're going to stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Is that legal under international law, saying we're just not going to accept these boats? Uh, weirdly, in some ways it is. Uh, the problem is that international laws are made by states, right? So states do not want to tie their hands that much. So when you look at it in terms of international law, uh, there is always a huge space, a huge grey area between what is legal and what is ethical, right? And in this case, this is probably one of the, I would say, most... Uh, clear examples of countries not wanting to tie their hands. So they left a huge gray area between uh, the rescue of people and the disembarkation of people, okay? So in terms of international law, it is absolutely a duty of any ship commander, if their ship, uh, their own ship is not at risk, to rescue people at sea, okay? So that's uh, absolutely clear in international law. The problem is that it is not clear where you should disembark these people, right? So once the rescue has been done, the commander has uh, a huge problem on their hand, especially when uh, uh, coastal states do not want to cooperate. So currently, uh, just to underline this paradox and emphasize it, think about Libya, okay? Libya has been defined by both the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the IOM, so in the International Organization for Migration, as a very not safe country, okay? So you could not disembark people there. But incredibly, under international law, Libya, since mid-2018, has been able to declare its own search and rescue zone, which means they can coordinate and actually they are responsible for coordinating rescues in a very vast area along the the sea, right? So just suppose an NGO carries out a rescue, then the duty of this NGO, incredibly, is to contact Libya in the first place, right? And ask for a place of safety, okay? So a place where to disembark these people. And again, Libya, again, this is a paradox, Libya should not indicate itself, its own country, as a place of safety because there is no place which is safe in Libya. So in the end, commanders, they don't know what to do. And there is a duty for them to disregard that order and head to a safe place. But again, the international law is silent on which criteria you should follow to get to the safe place. For instance, Carola Rakete, she, uh, Rakete, she came here in Italy. She disembarked people. She had an order not to do so. She did it. 
and the judges in Italy uh, ultimately uh, pronounced themselves in the in her favor, right? Because uh, they said that uh, the urge to disembark people is uh, prevails over national law. But you know, it's a matter for the judges to decide. It's uh, while international law is very very complicated and it seems to be silence on the matter. I mean, two things seem kind of clear to me. One of them is that Libya is not a safe place for migrants, right? Like we have this really well-documented evidence of the way that people have been treated in these detention centers. And we've got evidence of like migrants being used as slave labor. And of course, there was this airstrike recently, like 50 people got killed in it, an airstrike on a migrant detention center. Like it's clearly not a safe country for African migrants. And yet at the same time, Europe is like actively trying to keep them there. We have funded the Libyan Coast Guard for these rescue operations that you talk about. Why isn't that more of a scandal? It feels like we really don't talk about it that much. Yeah, we don't. Uh, again, I mean, the problem with Europe is that uh, mostly uh, we identify like Salvini as a, you know, as the bad guy. But in the end, the truth is, most of them are aligned. We're not talking that much about this because there is not a welcoming front against a repressive deterrence uh, front. All governments in Europe, probably apart from, but just a tiny bit, a part of the uh, Spanish government, they are absolutely in favor of uh, empowering the Libyan Coast Guard so that migrants do not reach Europe. And yes, this is at the cost of migrants themselves. We are actually pumping about 100 million euros into the Libyan Coast Guard each year. Italy pays about 50 million euros and other, another 50 million comes from the EU Trust Fund to all member states. And that is not uh, questioned that much, again, because there is a political consensus on that. Uh. Can we talk about Salvini a bit more? Um, his party did pretty well in the European elections. Uh, they got more than a third of the vote. Should we infer from that that all of Salvini's rhetoric against migrants is actually pretty popular? Absolutely, yes. Uh it is, and not just with the uh, Lega voters. A very recent survey in Italy found that more than six out of ten Italians were in favor of the policy of closing the ports. Okay, uh, actually, you cannot close Italian ports, but uh, this rhetoric that Italy is full, Italy cannot host any more migrants, finds six out of ten. Italians in favor. And uh, incredibly, for instance, from a center-left party, the Democratic Party, which is in the position right now, one quarter of their voters, potential voters, they are in favor of Salvini's policies. So you could say that this pays off even when there is no crisis at the border. Even when uh, arrivals have gone down 95%, people are so afraid of new arrivals or, let's say, an uptick of new arrivals that they favor this kind of policies. Why do you think that anti-migrant rhetoric is so popular at a time when the arrivals have actually slowed? Like, what's behind it? It's a complex mixture of fears and uh, sometimes misinformation. Uh, we made a survey in end 2017, okay, and it was already four months since there had been a huge drop in sea arrivals, the first drop before Salvini came to the government. It was an 80% drop, okay? And we asked people in Italy, do you think that arrivals this year are higher, the same, or uh, lower than uh, in 2016, so the year before? And uh, more than 80% of the people said the same or higher, Right? So there is a problem with information and perceptions. And then also there is a problem with fear, clearly. And it's been, uh, you can work out of fear and you can extract a lot of more of consensus rather than rational policies. And it's been hard for other parties to find a different narrative on welcoming people and uh, receiving people that can counter the 
the the narrative of you know migration is only costs and it's only bad. Matteo is one of the best people tweeting about migration out there, in my opinion. Um, you should check out his account. It is available at E M M E Villa. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah, I like when you say available at. It sounds like it's available at all good bookstores again. Oh, I think it sounds like he's available there to tweet at your every need at any time. He's just there waiting to tweet. Um, should we have a happy ending? Sure. Our happy ending this week was suggested by our wonderful Patreon supporter, Anne Yorok, who found me a non-police happy ending. Thank you, Anne. You can all breathe a sigh of relief that I'm not going to do any more unpaid work for the police PR departments of Europe. No, I'm going to talk about this most wonderful innovation that has taken place in Utrecht in the Netherlands. The local council have covered over 300 bus stop roofs with bee-friendly plants to improve biodiversity and make the struggling bee population a little bit happier. This is pretty lovely in itself, but they are also putting up plants that will have a positive effect on the air quality. The roofs themselves will catch uh, fine dust pollution and collect rainwater. If that wasn't enough already, the Utrecht City Council will introduce 55 new electric buses by the end of the year, all of which will run off Dutch wind power. Utrecht also has a funding scheme to help residents make their roofs more green. Utrecht, stop it. You're showing the other cities up, but actually don't stop it. Keep going. Go further. A real happy ending for once. That's wonderful. Somebody was suggesting to me this week that if you want to do your own small thing for bees, you can put some marbles in like a bowl and fill it with water and that uh, allows them like it's a really easy way for bees to drink because then they can sort of balance on the marbles while drinking and they're less likely to drown oh that sounds really cute and people keep i keep seeing these little bee hotels cropping up everywhere there's one just outside my house we've got them in paris too they're so cool i want to stay in a bee hotel do you I actually don't that would be so terrible It'd be like the worst night's sleep ever okay well i look forward to you reporting back from a bee hotel next week um <laughs> covered in stings it'll create a nice kind of radio noise what the sound of my um whimpering in pain whimpering and buzzing can't wait but for now you need to go and eat some disgusting sounding British breakfast. Yeah. And I need to go to Eindhoven. Next week, we're going to be talking about what happens when you make politicians talk about love. That's intriguing, isn't it? I hope that will tempt some of you back to this podcast. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on various social media platforms around the internet, including Twitter at EuropeansPod, Instagram at EuropeansPodcast, and Facebook if you just type in the Europeans Podcast. Thank you very much as well to the growing number of people who are supporting us on Patreon, including our latest supporters, Eustace Rameth and Alina Coors. It's really great and it allows us to think about doing way more exciting things to the podcast. So thank you so much. We indeed have some exciting plans to announce soon. Mm, including the tote bags. You'll be delighted to hear, listeners, that after my attempt this week to uh, design them myself, we've decided to opt for professional help. I, I think that was advisable. Definitely was. No offence. All right. Anyway, uh, see you all next week, everyone. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Bye.